Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been quite some time since I last was on the air podcasting. But then again, for those of you who've been uh, faithful listeners of mine, uh, you all have probably been given extended time to get caught up on um, podcast uh, topics from um, not long ago, including the one that we just finished uh, discussing a little over a week ago, being Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. Well, I have good news to report. Uh, Now that I'm back on the air with you guys, we're going to be uh, discussing a new uh, podcast series, and it does pertain uh, to the American Revolution, uh, but the good news is that um, it has to do with um, an individual whom most of you all probably don't know about. And I can tell you this much, he wasn't a signer to the Declaration of Independence, but he does uh, play an important role in the Revolution. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, is this, was this person at Lexington and Concord, or was this person uh, somewhere else during the uh, greater conflict in terms of the uh, war with England? Well, I can tell you this much, he wasn't at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, on the morning of April the uh, 19th of 1775. However, his actions resemble that of another uh, New Englander. And because his actions resemble that of a famous New Englander, it is fair to say that this man's story must be told. Because if it's not told, I'm not sure where most of you all would even uh, begin in terms of learning about this man. I have an idea as to where you might probably probably learn about who this person is, but isn't it also fair to say that it also doesn't hurt to learn about someone who has been forgotten um, right now versus later on down the road? Absolutely. So why don't we find out whom exactly we're going to be uh, discussing? But before I mention his name, Maybe it wouldn't hurt to also uh, get into what we call our prologue. So uh, here we go with our prologue being our introduction. The American Revolution can be seen as a radical awakening where men from northern, middle, and southern colonies banded together in renouncing their allegiances to the crown. And who was the crown, folks? Was it Spain or England? I think most of us ought to know it was England, a.k.a. King George III. While colonial leaders like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Roger Sherman to Samuel Adams, just to name a few of the many uh, prominent uh, forefathers whom left an indelible uh, legacy in securing America's future, while these men... Uh, like I said, just to name a few of the many uh, prominent uh, forefathers of ours whom were in uh, Philadelphia. As I said uh, earlier, while colonial leaders like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Roger Sherman to Samuel Adams had left their marks in Philadelphia's State House hallways between the years of 1774 to 1776, securing America's independence from England, The Revolutionary War went about producing many heroes whom achieved fame, not only on the battlefield, 
but also uh, away from the battlefield in terms of their individual acts of heroism. But yet for some of them, that is for some of these um, individuals, their stories haven't been accurately told. And too often um, when we hear about a particular year, such as in the case of 1781, there usually comes um, to many people's minds one particular battle in 1781, one particular defining moment, and that was the siege at Yorktown, Virginia, which ended up resulting in General, or rather I should say in British General Lord Charles Cornwallis's surrender to General George Washington on October 19th of 1781. Yes, that was important, but I do believe that many Americans, and just people in general, have forgotten that 1781 was more than just the surrender at Yorktown. I mean, for one, many people often assume that, um, that the British surrender at Yorktown automatically uh, ended the, the war itself altogether, but it did not. Uh, the war itself would still um, linger on for about another year or two. And, of course, the, um, the war itself uh, did not officially come to an end until uh, 1783 with the Treaty of Paris, which was the um, official treaty ending all hostilities between England and her subjects. So what else can we think of in 1781 that is just as relevant as the uh, surrender at Yorktown? Well, 1781 did produce intense uh, fighting, most notably in the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. In the case of South Carolina, when I think of intense fighting, how about um, the battle at uh, Cowpens, South Carolina, at the start of uh, January of that year? And as for North Carolina, it was uh, Guilford Courthouse. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the anniversary is coming up this week. I want to say it's uh, March the 15th, the uh, 200 and... Uh, the 241st anniversary of the Battle of, of uh, Guilford Courthouse. Well, yes, the Carolinas did produce their share of intense fighting. One colony, um, or I should say state, being the largest and the most populated of the 13 colonies being Virginia, fared differently during um, the greater conflict. Although General uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis won battles in the Carolinas, most notably when I think of uh, his winning a battle in South Carolina, it was uh, the Battle of Camden, which um, pretty much um, forced, um, at that time, uh, commander um, on the American side of the Southern Continental Army, General Horatio Gates. He pretty much left by horse uh, because he had, his forces had been routed by Cornwallis, largely due to Horatio Gates's ineffectiveness as a leader and his inability to um, fully uh, understand the, um, the greater uh, geography and landscape of fighting in South Carolina. But that would be saved for a whole other uh, topic. But when I think of General Lord Char Charles Cornwallis and his victories in the Carolinas, I tend to think of um, Camden, in uh, 1780, and I also, when it comes to uh, North Carolina, it would also be at Guilford Courthouse. However, 
despite his uh, victories in the Carolinas, these victories came at a great cost, being the loss of soldiers from irregular or what we call guerrilla warfare, non-traditional fighting. In other words, Cornwallis lost more men from the backcountry skirmishes and battles where his men were going into uncharted territory. They were not going to be fighting an open battlefield, uh, linear warfare where you have X number of men fighting on one side, firing straight into the open field where your enemy is way on the opposite side. In other words, Cornwallis and his men were going into unknown territory, being lured in, as a matter of fact, and their losses were so heavy that for every uh, British soldier that was dead or wounded, it just meant that the greater the likelihood of being able to replace those soldiers came at a great cost. In other words, you know, it's one thing to... um, wage war on um, subjects, but at the same time, if you don't wage war properly on them and you don't respect non-conventional methods of warfare, then how are you going to be able to hit a home run out of the park in terms of being able to put an end to all fighting? So Cornwallis was winning, but his victories were coming at enormous costs. In other words, how much more can Parliament fund this war when when their own men are dying at an alarming rate. So, okay, yes, Cornwallis is winning battles in the Carolinas, but they're coming at a cost due to the fact that he is not, uh, due to the fact that he didn't um, make the necessary adaptations to irregular or what we call guerrilla warfare, non-traditional fighting. However, the war from Cornwallis's perspective needed refocusing. Well, how is it going to need refocusing? Well, there's a greater mission, a greater mission that must take full force, and that is by controlling the largest of Britain's American colonies, being Virginia. Well, if anybody in the British can control Virginia, then they are set, because once Virginia's controlled, then how do the colonies themselves, how, how do they regroup and how can they liberate one of their own being the largest whom they have to look to? Because think about it, prior to severing ties with England, many, if not all, of the colonies, other colonies had to turn to Virginia. After all, Virginia was the one that had the most to gain and the most to lose. And if anybody was going to... Um, declare their separation from England, they probably probably would want to check with Virginia first, because Virginia, of all the 13 colonies, is the one that had, that carries so much power, and we have to remember, folks, there's no West Virginia or no Ohio, but all that territory that we now know as West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, that's all Virginia. So, It is fair to say that uh, Virginia is the granddaddy of all the colonies, and for Lord Charles, for General Lord Charles Cornwallis, nothing would taste sweeter to him than conquering Virginia. So General Lord Charles Cornwallis firmly believed 
that in order to secure the Carolinas and Georgia, in order to firmly secure what he has achieved in the Carolinas and also uh, whatever success has occurred in Georgia, in order for that success to, main, to, have, to maintain any relevancy, Virginia had to be brought into the conflict on her own home soil, which also meant defeating any opposing force that stood in the way, I should say patriot resistance. So for Cornwallis, victory in Virginia would be defining as the entire South would more than likely run a great um, chance of returning under British authority, leaving the remaining nine American colonies, their statuses in limbo and perhaps America's future regarding independence from England. Okay, we have, you know, there are four southern colonies, folks. The upper south is comprised of Virginia and North Carolina. The lower south, South Carolina and Georgia. But if Virginia can be won and in the possession of General Lord Charles Cornwallis, that means that um, anyone from the north who is trying to come south will be cut off. In other words, their supply lines could be cut off. Anything could be cut off. Um, you know, there's just so much at stake. Hark back. Let's, let's go back about six years, folks, before 1781. We need a little refresher here. Hark back to April of 1775, just around the eve of Lexington and Concord. Eight, you know, the eve of Lexington and Concord and those battles which took place on April uh, 19th of 1775. When I think of that time, let's think of uh, patriot writers like Paul Revere. Yes, I know many would like to believe that Paul Revere shouted the British were coming. No, he didn't do that. And remember, we learned that from um, the book series that we did about a year ago uh, from da that was written by David Hackett Fisher, Paul Revere's Ride. You know, Paul Revere had lots of help. And on the eve of the... Lexington and Concord battles, when Patriot writers like Paul Revere, Samuel Prescott, and William Dawes, their mission was to inform their fellow peoples of British advances. But for the three of them, it wasn't just their um, leadership alone, but it was a greater intelligence network of writers whom worked for Revere the, those riders traversed north and south of Boston as well as westward. And, of course, when I think of anywhere west of Boston, I think of Worcester, which is about 50 miles west. But those British riders, not British, those uh, Patriot riders whom went north and south and west of Boston, whom were a part of that greater um, intelligence uh, network of warning the greater um, people of Massachusetts of, of what was about to happen, Revere and his riders had been preparing for a showdown with the king's troops, most notably General Thomas Gage's, most notably General Thomas Gage's troops, whose presence had been a fixture in Massachusetts dating back to 1768. But the showdown in Massachusetts had been coming for some time. They knew that a showdown in the long run was inevitable, 
but this was attributed largely due to long-term intelligence gathering, which uh, paved the way to ensure that other Massachusetts leaders like John Hancock and Samuel Adams, they were uh, not far from um, Lexington and Concord. As a matter of fact, I believe they were at a, they were at a tavern not far from, the, uh, from where uh, the Lexington Green was, where the first shots fired around the world took place. But Paul Revere um, warned these two men in enough time that, hey, the British are coming and you need to leave now. Otherwise, you might run the risk of coming into not only just enemy contact, but becoming a, um, a prisoner. And not just a prisoner, but a, a high-ranking prisoner who um, may not be offered a prisoner exchange. And if you don't leave now, not only will you become prisoner, but you will be taken to England as a prisoner, tried, and sentenced to die. Think about that. Remember, folks, in 1774 with those intolerable acts, coercive acts? If you committed a crime in Massachusetts, you weren't tried in Massachusetts. The, uh, Parliament decides that it's okay to send those defendants to England where they'll be tried and um, be sentenced to, um, to not only, say, a long-term jail sentence, but per perhaps death. So I'm sure many of you all are wondering now, well, what... What did the events of 1775 leading up to Lexington and Concord have anything to do with Virginia come 1781? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we're going to find out more information here. Virginia, before and going into 1781, had been actively involved in the War for Independence. Okay, that's good. But how so? Her energies centered upon sending troops horses, and other provisions northward from 1775 till June of 1778. So is it fair to say, folks, that soldiers from Virginia were fighting as far north as perhaps um, the battles at uh, Germantown and uh, Brandywine come 1777? We Historians know that, um, that the soldiers whom fought at Lexington and Concord in April of 1775 uh, were comprised not only of Massachusetts um, soldiers, but they also were comprised of New Hampshire, Connecticut, and uh, Rhode Island uh, forces. So it's fair to say that obviously in April of 1775 the conflict is confined to just uh, the northern um, colonies, but the forces themselves are comprised not only of Massachusetts men, but as I said a moment ago, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island uh, men. But after 1775, Virginia is sending more and more men to places like uh, New York, uh, for example, uh, the, the New York campaign of 1776, which sadly was a, a disaster, a debacle under um, Proportions that uh, many of us could only fathomly imagine, but it was. There were Virginians at Trenton and Princeton, which helped turn the tide and restore morale to the cause for independence. And as I said earlier, there were Virginians fighting at Brandywine in Germantown, Pennsylvania, on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And there were Virginians fighting at Monmouth uh, Courthouse, New Jersey, in June of 1778, most notably uh, one famous Virginian whom was uh, fighting, he had been fighting since 1776, was James Monroe, who um, 
gave up, who put a halt to his studies at William and Mary to join uh, the ranks of the Continental Army. Monroe and uh, many of his um, fellow um, brethren at William and Mary would uh, train out on the uh, field near the um, where the public armory stands today, or the um, the uh, basically where the uh, the house where all the uh, essential uh, provisions for uh, defending the uh, the community uh, would have been stored. So. So think about this. Virginia is providing um, troops, horses, and other essential provisions northward from the time the shots are first heard around the world up until the stalemate at Monmouth Courthouse in June of 1778. Virginia hasn't seen any action on its own home soil, with the exception in December of 1775 at the Battle of uh, Great Bridge when... um, when uh, Continental forces were able to um, defeat uh, Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment, which was comprised, folks, the reason I would say it was an Ethiopian regiment, it wasn't that the soldiers came from Ethiopia. Lord Dunmore was Virginia's last royal governor. His name was John Murray, but he was referred to as Lord Dunmore. So for Governor Dunmore, he offers he offered a proposition or a solution saying that for any slaves who run away can take up arms with the king and will be granted their freedom. Well, they did, and so uh, Dunmore himself decided to refer to this regiment as the Ethiopian Regiment, but they were uh, defeated uh, by Continental forces at the Battle of Great Bridge, which is uh, not too terribly far from... Uh, present-day Hampton Roads in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. But come 1779, Virginia shifts course, and this time, instead of sending troops, horses, and other essential provisions northward, because in June of 1778, uh, fighting in the north comes to a halt after that uh, stalemate at Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey. So Virginia now is shifting its resources in the opposite direction, southward, into the Carolinas. But for all the good that Virginia was doing in assisting the greater war effort north and south, Virginia, unfortunately, wasn't anywhere close to being well fortified internally. What do I mean internally, folks? Inside, within the state. Is it fair to say, though, that many of Virginia's leaders didn't think that an attack was imminent in their state. No. Were they being cocky about it? No. At the same time, they are sending as many of their uh, fellow uh, troops who whom are willing to make the necessary sacrifices and die for their country, they are sending them where the fighting is needed. You know, why are you going to keep a thousand men in Virginia if you know that there's no fighting going on in your state, why would you hold them there? You would send them where where the fighting is most prevalent and where the greatest demand of troops are needed. And believe it or not, folks, Virginia did send about 400 troops down south to South Carolina by the time the Battle of uh, Camden occurred. And many of those Virginia troops um, were in a terrible state, and a lot of that just simply had to do with... Uh, General Horatio Gates's leadership, and of course, as I said earlier, that would be a topic for a whole other discussion, 
on another subject, or I should say, but in case many of y'all are wondering, where was Virginia a year earlier in 1780? Were troops sent southward? Yes. Most notably to Camden, they were sent, they could have even been sent to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, a few months before Camden. Um, Virginia was probably sending troops as far south into North Carolina as Guilford Courthouse, which isn't too terribly far from uh, what we now know as Greensboro. So that just gives you an idea of Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies and where her troops are going. But for many Americans, including Revolutionary War historian experts and authors, Paul Revere of Massachusetts has often received the greatest recognition based upon heroic acts performed leading up to April 19th of 1775, Lexington and Concord battles, and warning uh, the greater public behind what lied at stake. And it was more than just the British are coming. It's you know maybe Paul Revere did say to a few people that the British are coming, but he didn't shout it at the top of his lungs because if he had, he probably would have given it away to where, um, to where his ride would not have um, been as successful as it was. Of course, for those of you who were with me when we did talk about Paul Revere's ride, we did learn that Revere himself was captured, but somehow. Um, did get released by the British. But anyways, um, while Paul Revere and his greater network of dispatch riders had successfully prevailed behind the scenes leading up to when the first shots heard round the world were fired on the morning of April 19th, 1775, six years later, come 1781, America's Revolutionary War was in need of a new hero, most notably to Virginia, America's largest colony. While Virginia was already producing its share of outstanding statesmen from Thomas Jefferson, George Wythe, Patrick Henry, she also churned out military battlefield leaders from General George Washington. Of course, we can't forget Washington, the commander of the Continental Army. You also had another Virginian whom most people didn't, don't know about. He hailed from uh, the Shenandoah Valley, being Major General Peter Mullenberg. And there is a college in Pennsylvania named Mullenberg uh, College, named in his honor. And then we had a lieutenant colonel named James Monroe. All of these men, whether they were a statesman or a military officer, were doing their, performing their duties with the utmost um, honor. All of that was great. But 1781, prior to Yorktown's siege, would become a time of uncertainty, which stretched as high up into the Commonwealth's government. I know I mentioned something foreign to some of you all, Commonwealth. Do any of you all know what the, the term Commonwealth itself means? Common has to do, um, common refers to political, the political um, aspects. Wealth refers to the many people whom benefit from the political decisions made by the state legislature being Virginia's state legislature, the General Assembly. There are four states. Three of them were of the original 13 colonies that are referred to as commonwealths, Virginia being one of them, Pennsylvania the second, Massachusetts the third. Does anybody know what, which other state um, is referred to as a commonwealth? There are only four. I just named you three. Kentucky is the fourth. 
So when you think of uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Kentucky, think of them as commonwealths. The man whom stepped up at the right place, right time, was a Virginian named Jack Jewett. And I'm sure many of you all probably have never even heard of Jack Jewett. Well, this is a great time to learn about Jack Jewett, now that we're, uh, not only that we're in a new series, but because, you know, what we're, what we're constantly being reminded of is that the American Revolution was more than just fighting battles. It was more than just um, our forefathers signing a document marking America's birthday and being that official day where we decided that it would be the day that we officially declared our separation from England. But the, uh, the greater uh, conflict itself, or the movement itself, did produce heroes, big and small, whom have been largely forgotten. And maybe it's because of another man's status carrying more clout than the others, than the other um, man's stat, uh, than, than, than the other man. But um, yes, the man whom stepped up at the right place, right time, was a Virginian named Jack Jewett. But Jewett's leadership wouldn't be confined to only a select few men. Could we be seeing a similarity? Like Paul Revere and his vast network of dispatch riders from 1775, Virginia's Jack Jewett and those below him were faced with the greatest daunting task in 1781, being the ride of a lifetime to save Virginia from falling into British hands, but most importantly, the American Revolution in its greatest cause, separation from England altogether. And I'm also wondering, could Mr. Jewett, or Officer Jewett, however you want to uh, describe him, and those below him, do you think that they also could be on a mission to save high-level um, government officials in Virginia and those whom serve in our state legislature? I know it might seem like I could be giving away some stuff, but we have to remember that um, it's not just a few people's lives that are at stake, but the greater um, government of Virginia could be at stake. You know, the bigger question is, is who do we warn and who do we tell? If we don't tell a lot of people, then how can government itself function in, in a time of emergency? Maybe that's what Paul Revere was trying to Yes, Paul Revere may have, he could have famously, he, he could have said the British were coming, but I think it's very unlikely that he did that. Paul Revere was trying to ensure that Massachusetts's well-being was not jeopardized and that their interim government would still function. For Jack Jewett, he wants Virginia to function, but the only way Virginia can function is to... Um, get the warnings out in enough time. So Virginia, six years later, whereas Massachusetts stood six years earlier, are both in similar situations. And how ironic that both of these states, or colonies, however you want to describe them, were the two leading states. They may have been a little bit different in their ideologies, but they were the two that were able to uh, work together and help other, the other colonies come into the uh, fray or into the uh, equation where everybody eventually knew that there was no other. 
they knew that everything else they had tried, most notably that olive branch petition had failed. They knew that, hey, we must, we must come together now or we shall all hang separately. That's what Benjamin Franklin said, something along that line. We, sh- we shall all uh, come together as one or we'll have to hang separately and explain why we did not um, make the ultimate sacrifice. And that, and that being uh, uh, renouncing our uh, allegiances from the mother country. So yes, like Paul Revere in 1775, Virginia's Jack Jewett and those below him will be faced with the greatest daunting task in 1781, being a ride of a lifetime to save Virginia from falling into British hands, but most importantly, the American Revolution and its greatest cause, separation from England altogether. Some of you are probably wondering, is that the end of the uh, introduction? Almost. But I do believe that introductions have to have a good starting point, but they also have to have a very good ending point. Because if, if we don't have a good starting point or an ending point, then how can the introduction itself be fully relevant? To better understand Jack Jewett is to get an in-depth analysis behind what led up to the events of early June 1781, impacting Virginia's government from its legislative and executive branches. Crises alone were a constant norm throughout America's war for independence. Of course, when I think of a crisis, I usually think of um, keeping men enlisted in the Continental Army. Because early on, <laughs> men um, were not interested in, in, um, in the cause, especially after the New York debacle. There were men who went back home to tend to their uh, farms and be with their families. There were men whom deserted and went over to the British side. That's why George Washington ultimately had no other choice to do uh, what he did, folks, thanks to the help of a, uh, of a spy who gave him valuable information that led to his, um, his uh, mission of December of 1776 what we now know as the Battle of uh, Trenton and come the start, the very beginning of January 1777, uh, the Battle of Princeton, but most notably for Trenton, that mission was victory or death, crossing the Delaware River Christmas night of 1776. And by uh, doing so, he did the improbable, not only crossing the Delaware River, he and the the group of uh, men that made it over, but they were able to um, launch a surprise attack on a Hessian post in Trenton that led to the capture of nearly a thousand uh, Hessian soldiers, including um, killing their lead commander, Colonel Johann Rall. So that tells you right there of a crisis right there. When I think of a crisis there, how about um, keeping morale up? Finding a way when it was least expected to keep men in the army because Washington knew that if he did not uh, uh, go about pursuing this mission, that the whole uh, entire cause behind independence from England was going to be extinguished. So yes, crises alone were a constant norm throughout America's war for independence, but Virginia, come 1781, faced crises like never before, and it would be left up to Jack Jewett, including others below him, and banding together by maintaining America's quest for freedom within her largest colony, Virginia. Crises occur from all different walks, 
But heroes emerge out of the shadows to perform improbable acts, including saving their native homeland, homelands from falling into enemy hands, thus avoiding return of becoming property to an institution 3,000 miles across the ocean whom didn't view her subjects, a.k.a. 13 colonies, with kindness and respect. Indeed, we will be reminded in this podcast series that the American Revolution's heroes weren't necessarily confined to historic documents along with high-level military-ranking posts. But the movement became one where unknown heroes emerged at the right time and place to save their country's mission from falling apart. Therefore, Jack Jewett and the mission and saving Virginia and America's war for independence must be told like never before so that generations present and future may never take inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for granted. Well, the, the book we will be discussing, I mean, well, for one, we're, we already know whom we're going to be discussing, Jack Jewett. But the book we will be talking about I read not too terribly long ago, is titled as follows, Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, The Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution, by Judy Bloodgood Bander. Well, folks, this is the story. This is a story, uh, as I said a moment ago, must not be forgotten. It's a story that must be told. And for those of you who live in Virginia and do not know this story, when we've finished it, you will come away knowing just how much lied at stake for Virginia prior to October 19, 1781, when being that date when General Lord Charles, when General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to George, General George Washington. But even the siege of Yorktown alone could not have happened had it not been for other events that uh, took place prior to 1781, not only just in the Carolinas, but what lied at stake for Virginia prior to the Battle of Yorktown even commencing. When I'm on the air again next, we will will learn um, an assortment of things that are relevant, but one thing I will tell you all that we will learn about is uh, Jack Jewett's early upbringing. After all, Mr. Jewett does have a story to tell, and it is one that is of uh, utmost relevance. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And for those of you um, who know of others out there who are interested in learning about uh, history, just tell them to come to Anchor. It's, it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and if they choose to get um, going on uh, podcasting through Anchor, once they get started, the opportunities go beyond the sky ceiling. And how do I know that? Well, I'm in 48 nations around the world. And that is not something I take for granted. I'm just very thankful to know that there are people throughout the world who enjoy learning what I've been able to share with you all, including all of you in the United States. So, um, again, um, let's um, keep our seatbelts fastened because um, we have uh, someone whom we'll be learning about who, um, in my opinion, could um, have many uh, unique features or similarities to Mr. Paul Revere of Massachusetts. But of, but of course, if I told you more now, many of you all would say, well, what's the point in being on the air again next time? 
thank you for your time as always, and uh, I look forward to being on the air again soon. And uh, thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being avid uh, podcast listeners. Take care for now, and wherever you may live in the world, uh, stay safe. Later for now.